But now is a good time to turn to Psalm 51. While you're turning there, I'll remind you that we're taking a few weeks to go through some of the Psalms in order to uh, know the Psalms themselves, but also to know some of the types of Psalms. Last week we looked at what's sometimes called a, a Messianic Psalm. It's a Psalm that speaks specifically of the work that Jesus uh, was going to do, and oftentimes parallels with work that uh, some other king, maybe David or somebody else, uh, was had done or, or something, but, but more uh, importantly points to the, the work that Jesus was to do. Today we're going to look at Psalm 51, which is a a penitential psalm. It's a psalm of repentance. And there are other psalms that we'll look at as we we go along in different times. Now hold your place there in Psalm 51 and let me tell you another story. The Lord... Sorry, let me start a different place here. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat morsels from his table and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the the guest who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the visitor who had come to him. The story was told by the prophet Nathan to the king David. And David, when he heard it, was angry. He said, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. David was convicted in heart and he repented and penned this psalm in response to the sin that he had committed. He had slept with the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, who was a member of his army, a courageous soldier in his army. And then when she became pregnant, he covered it up by trying one way that failed and then sending Uriah to the front of the battlefield knowing that he would die in battle. And so, having committed both adultery and murder, David hears these words, You are the man. When we look at the sin around us in the world, we're tempted to think that's somebody else's problem. But this psalm reminds us that in many ways we are the man, maybe not committing adultery and murder. Perhaps some who are listening today have. 
But still, when we come to this psalm, the psalm of repentance, we should hear the words, you are the man, and own this psalm for ourselves and know how to use it for all of us have sinned and will sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter, whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem and then you will, deli- will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. Grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word, this psalm, will stand forever. Let's pray. O Lord, will you open our hearts to see wonderful things that are captured here in this psalm written by King David on a sorrowful occasion, but one that you returned him and the people of Jerusalem and each of us who are heirs with our King Jesus, joy. Will you help us to rejoice? As we confess our sins to you, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I used this psalm a couple times earlier just to show how I oftentimes will use psalms. You notice that uh, in the confession of sin, I even broke up a part and just used a couple portions of it. Anytime I do that in the liturgy, I encourage you to go back and read the whole psalm. Sometimes it's just to zero in on some words that are particularly uh, useful to us. The psalm... This psalm is heartfelt, and once again, 
like all the Psalms, but one, it takes us from one place. It took David from one place and moves him to another place. The Psalms are meant to be medicine to our soul that take us from one place, that identify the places of heartache and repentance and sorrow and even joy and bring us to other places that delight in the right things and who God is and what He's done for us in His salvation and where He's leading us and how He cares for us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your steadfast love, according to Your abundant mercy. David looks not to the condition of his own heart or even the, the depth of his, uh, of his repentance as the starting point for, his, for, for his, his repentance. He looks rather to God's steadfast love and His abundant mercy. He looks to God's character to secure His place. Because when we are faced with our own sin, our own shortcomings, we will always be slow to go to another in forgiveness and certainly slow to go to God in forgiveness or to ask for forgiveness. The example that David lays out for us is always to go first to who God is and what He's done for us. Throughout the Psalms, we see a reference back to the mighty works of God and the things God has done before for us. And that should always be the thing that leads us to Him. So I want to look at just a few things that are contained in this psalm. There are a few difficult passages in this psalm. It raises some interesting questions. Um, you know, the question of uh, just some theological questions of how we uh, in, inherit sin and how we, uh, what, what our parents' role is that, even in the questions of generational sin. Um, but I also want to look at what this psalm reminds us of as we understand the whole of redemptive script, redemptive history, in uh, in in how God works through people. Here's the first first point. So I've got just a few points. I'm not going to number them because I probably won't get to all of them. But here's the first one. When we come to the Old Testament uh, people of God, we need to understand that the Old Testament saints are heroes. Are are heroes for their faith but not necessarily heroes for all of their actions. If you want to turn with me in your Bible, turn with me to, uh, to ch- Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is sometimes called the Hall of Faith, or in some translations it might be titled By Faith. And it opens with these words, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It goes on to give examples of by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And it speaks of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
of various other leaders of God's people and even King David himself. It speaks of how they led people into battle and were victorious in battle. How they offered right sacrifices like Abel. By faith, the people had done these things. Sometimes we go back to the Old Testament and we start reading through the Old Testament and we think, how, how are these people examples of faith or faithfulness? We read stories like this one of King David, which is in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and what he did and even the consequences of it. We wonder how Jesus could speak of David being a man after God's own heart. And when we come to the Old Testament, and even the New Testament, and even all of us, we need to read these stories and understand that some things that the people did were examples of tremendous faith and right things. But far more significantly for all of us, we need to understand that these people, all of them, were people with significant faults. People who didn't measure up, even in their time, to the expectations that were on them by others, much less than the expectations that God has put on us on how we should love one another. When we see the heroes, we need to see heroes who are heroes not so much by their actions, but first by their faith. That they believed God and trusted Him for forgiveness. That when David was confronted with a sin that was worthy of potentially even the death sentence at the time, and certainly of losing his throne, he responded not with a hardness of heart and flee and trying to cover up his sin all the more, but he recognized that he needed to confess his sin to God. And he says these striking words in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now these words beg another question. Seems like David has sinned pretty significantly against Uriah, Bathsheba, and against everyone that he serves in his kingdom. Why would David say against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? And without getting into the theological nuances of it, David recognizes that his sin, like all of our sin, is first of all a sin against God. When we do wrong against another person, whatever wrong it is, our sin is first against God. Firstly, the other person that we've sinned against is not completely innocent themselves, at least of all sins, and has, has limited ability to fully judge and righteously judge our actions. And likewise, we need to be careful how we judge others because, as Jesus pointed out, let who him, him who is without sin cast the first stone. It's only God who can fully judge and rightly judge. And so David rightly recognizes that he needs to go to God for his forgiveness first. 
And he also recognizes that it's only God who can fully forgive him. God is the one who is just in his judgment and complete in his forgiveness. We see this all the time around us. The forgiveness that we can offer others and the forgiveness even that we receive from others is oftentimes so partial, not necessarily intentionally. Oftentimes we offer forgiveness with the best of hearts and yet we hold on to the small grudges with one another. We let seeds of bitterness get under our skin and we we hold on to those things and we can't fully forgive. And that's not to say... That's not to say that we need to be perfect in our forgiveness, but rather it's to point us to the one who is complete in his forgiveness, and that's Jesus Christ. It's God himself who can forgive all of our sins. But when we say that he is the one who is blameless in his judgment, he is also the one who in his sacrifice for sin is blameless, a blameless sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice who has paid the full debt for our sin. God forgives us through Jesus more thoroughly than we can ever forgive one another or receive forgiveness for another from another. And that's part of the reason that Paul that David says here against you and you only have I done what is evil in your sight. But our sin does affect others. And David goes on to express that in this psalm. He says as he goes on, he calls for God to cleanse him thoroughly, to work this forgiveness that he has done, that he receives from God, and that that Jesus has offered us fully when he says, uh, you delight in the truth of the inward being, teach wisdom in the secret heart. David's calling out with a, a, a show of affection to God that is not for appearances to other people around him but one that God knows and hears. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then in verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This is my third point here, and that is that our sin does affect other people, but our repentance, our repentance leads others to salvation. David's life became pretty hard after this sin in particular. The consequences that God brought on him within his own family and within his kingdom were pretty significant. But when David had confessed his sin here, he saw an opportunity that his kingdom would be established not on his own goodness or his own righteousness, but on the righteousness of God, on the forgiveness of God far more powerful than any of David's victories or military conquests or even his ruling is his repentance that's demonstrated in this psalm. 
The testimony that reminds us that we can identify with David without fear of condemnation because Jesus has won a salvation for us, because Jesus has been the better David than we could have hoped for. And we, like David, can identify with we can identify with David and see an opportunity in our repentance for other people to experience the salvation of God. Sometimes, sometimes we say, well, we're not, uh, we're not better than other people, we're just saved by God. It's kind of a false dichotomy there, because when we are saved by God, we are forgiven for our sins that are no worse or no better than other people. And yet, and yet that salvation moves us to a different place where we can pursue the good things of God and we can pursue and follow in his example and his leadership and obey his laws. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Two things going on there. He's teaching the law of God that he loves, that he talks about in in multiple psalms, Psalm 119 and Psalm 19, the the law of God, but he's also teaching the salvation of God as sinners will return to, to God. He goes on to speak of delivering him from the blood guiltiness, O God. And then he speaks of, interestingly, the building up of Jerusalem. So in verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem and then you will delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And bowls will be offered on your altar. We'll wait for this one to go by before I start this. This is our four, fourth point. And it really gets at the question of what does God desire? Is it ritual? The sacrifices... Is it our heart? And what does that do? David desires for the walls of Jerusalem to be built up. And yet he speaks earlier. For I will not, for, for you, verse 16, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Again, a false dichotomy is oftentimes raised by these points. God wants the heart. It doesn't really matter what we do. It's what what we believe and what we feel. But then David goes on to say, no, when the heart is in the right place, those actual sacrifices, the burnt offerings of the Old Testament religious system, the whole burnt offerings, the bowls offered, will be received and delighted in. It's not an either or of these things. In fact, these things oftentimes work together. The parallel of these for us in our life and in our ministry and in our worship practice is our confession of sin. Actually, the sacrifices align fairly well with a whole of worship from the call to worship to our confession of sin and assurance to the preaching of the Word and even the Lord's Supper, which will uh, serve again next week for the first time here back after the quarantine. 
The sacrifices today, the sacrifices today are important things that help to direct our heart back to God. Might draw a parallel to working out or exercise. When we first get back into the gym, if we've been away for a while, the routine, the rhythm, by the way, I'm longing to get back into the gym myself right now. The routine, the rhythm, the, the just going there knowing it is needed for us to, to start to enjoy the benefits of being in shape, of, of seeing those things. In a similar way, the sacrifices or our coming to worship on a weekly basis or attending and going through these things are not just a matter of going through the motions. They're actually strengthening us and reminding us and returning our hearts, pointing our hearts back to the God who has given us, the, provided these things for us. At the same time, it's so easy, especially with worship, probably even more so than with the gym, to come and to go through the motions and think, I've given God my due for the week. Now I can do my thing. When what God desires from all of us is a heart that is constantly poured out before Him and ready to serve Him, that our lives would be part of building up these metaphorical walls of Jerusalem, not as a church that's building up walls to keep other, others out, but building up a strong city, a city that is faithful to defend the needs of those in her bounds, city where the king and others in positions of power don't look at the poor man who had only one ewe lamb and take that for themselves. The strong city is one that is for the benefit of all and seeks to have fair systems and just systems. The walls that are built up of Jerusalem are are, are representative of justice being done in a place. And so David, when he comes and confesses his sin here, he recognizes that he himself, like us, so often are guilty of build, tearing down the very structures that God would call us to build up. Now, how do we do this? Oftentimes we do it by speaking negatively of the church, of the gathering of God's people. It's not to say there aren't negative things about the church, or even write criticisms of the church, either in its individual form or in its corporate body and denominations or as a whole. We do it in our marriages when we speak negatively of our spouse or even of our kids or our parents. We do it in the workplace, in various places where we are oftentimes, especially when we are idle and don't have enough to do, criticizing those things around us rather than trying to provide solutions to the problems. We can speak of problems. We've been identifying problems. We also need to provide ideas for solutions hands to rebuild the city, willing to work to do those hard things. But the greatest damage that can be done to the church and to the city around us, to the walls of Jerusalem, 
is when we take advantage of one another. When we take advantage of others around us. When we steal from others. This was the focus of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in so many ways and places. He says, when have I been angry? Or when have you been angry? When have you committed adultery against another person? When have you committed murder against another person? He says, when our hearts were filled with anger against another person. We've committed adultery when we look lustfully at somebody who's not our, our spouse. We steal from them. Create all kinds of problems. In the same sermon, he calls out the Pharisees as ones who disfigure their faces when they fast. He says, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, the Pharisees. For they disfigure their faces when they're fasting, so that so their fa- their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. How? How can we seek to build up the walls of Jerusalem? The first way is that when we sin, we recognize, like David, that we've sinned against God first and foremost. And we go to Him with a broken and contrite heart, seeking to experience the forgiveness that He has assured us by His character, by His steadfast love and abundant mercy, He will extend to us. Those marks, those words of His character are covenant words. God's steadfast love is His covenant promise to us that He will never leave us or forsake us. That even though we sin in many ways against Him and run away and pursue our own things and steal from others, He is faithful to forgive us. David cries out, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not from your presence. It's a cry that's that's daunting. It's, It's haunting because it seems like we might be able to lose our salvation by our sin. Is that what David's calling out to? I'm fearful of. And I know this is a question that many people, many people are listening and, and many people are here have, have asked. And what is that assurance of salvation? Can we lose our salvation? Is David truly at risk of losing God's Holy Spirit? And just a little bit theologically here, when God speaks of his Holy Spirit, or David speaks of God's Holy Spirit in this way, it's probably not the same kind of Holy Spirit indwelling that we read about in the New Testament because Jesus has not yet come and we don't see that Holy Spirit poured out and taking residence in people in the same way or the same language that God speaks of in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is absolutely at work and active in salvation. But when David expresses this, He's not so much saying that God would leave him alone and take his salvation from him, for he's known his salvation. And when God saves a sinner, there is nothing that we can do to run away or leave God. And yet, oftentimes, for seasons, we as Christians do run from God and pursue selfish pursuits and vain pursuits. And yet God is faithful to bring us back. To send a prophet like Nathan into our lives to call us. The question of whether we can lose our salvation 
is really a much bigger one that I don't want to get into entirely today. The question of whether we had salvation or not at the beginning, but here's the, the promise that God uh, wants us to look back on. And it, it's, it's, when, it's when that promise began for David. Look back with me at verse 5. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's another one of those troubling theological questions. Was it sinful for David's mother and father to uh, have sexual intercourse and conceive this son? Or is there something else going on here? What most scholars would agree to agree about on this passage is that David is looking back to his time of conception for two or a few assurances. And the first assurance is this, that God was the one who was at work to make him. It speaks in another place of being intricately woven in his mother's womb. For the time of conception is the time of the beginning of life for a person. And David is saying, God, you made me, you know me. I was there because you put me there. And yet... I also recognize that my sin nature, the nature that I inherited because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden first and every human ever born has inherited that sin nature. More than that, every human that has ever been born, except one, continues in that sin nature, continues to work out that sin nature in committing actual sins. David says, I was a sinner from the time that I was conceived. But he also says, God, I know that you knew me from the time that I was conceived. I know that you had a promise for me and were at work in my life from the time that I was conceived. David's looking back not to his own faithfulness in his life or even his actions and his up and down. He's looking back to God and his character and his promises as the assurance of his salvation. He uses some interesting language, doesn't he? It seems like it'd be easier if he just said, God, you made me, you intricately wove me in the, my mother's womb and I know you've, you've had me, but he's looking back at a time when he knows and is convicted of his own sin. And he's looking back to that time that he knows that God knew him and saying, I was a sinner even from that time. And my salvation, my salvation has always been dependent not on my, how sorry I am for my sins, how deeply I'm feeling my, my, my sorrow. But my salvation then and now has always been based entirely on your steadfast love. Entirely on your steadfast love. I was a sinner in my mother's womb and I was my salvation was based entirely on your steadfast love. When I experience difference, distance from you, when, when I experience being cast away from your presence and your Holy Spirit being far from me, it's not because it is, it's because I don't see you at work in my life during that time. 
I'm running from you, but you, in the words of another psalm, Psalm 139, you are the one who always pursues me and knows where I am. You are, in one picture, the hound of heaven who comes after us as sinners and reminds us over and over again how thoroughly you cleanse us from our sin. The picture of the Old Testament sacrifices, the purging with hyssop, literally a branch with leaves on it that was used to spread blood on people. To spread blood on people to remind them that something died in their place so that they would not have to die. Blood is pretty vivid in imagery. Just this week, I hadn't planned to use this, but I'm going to use it. Just this week, we've been using, watching the, uh, uh, the recent um, portrayal of Shakespeare's Macbeth movie portrayal. Patrick Stewart in it. And it's bloody. It's gory. We live in a very sanitized time. We rarely see blood. Especially blood that actually came from the life of something else being taken from it, like an animal dying uh, to uh, to be used for food. But the imagery of the Old Testament sacrifices and the sprinkling of blood reminded the people that there was a blood guiltiness of to their sin that was deserving of death, but something else died in their place so that they wouldn't have to. And David says, purge me with this hyssop. Remind me how clean you wash me. And he uses this vivid imagery that's, that's paralleled, but not quite uh, this way, that's whiter than snow. We don't see a lot of snow in San Diego, but all of us have been to the mountains and we see that gleam, that freshness. It is a cleansing that is more thorough than anything else. The words that he uses to speak of cleaning, clean, creating me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. Those words for cleaning refer to cleaning of a garment or washing, doing laundry. And what David is saying is that he's putting on this garment that is washed far cleaner than any soap or detergent can ever do. Even the most scrubbing that can possibly done be done in Macbeth, Lady Macbeth is famous for trying to wash out the, the damaged spot that's on her hands, having committed murder herself. And she can't do it. But here's the good news of the gospel, and that is that Jesus is the sacrifice that has done just that and washes washes away all of our sin and makes us whiter than snow. The promises of God, the promises of God, His steadfast love, His abundant mercy are what we should look to and need to look to when we sin and go with this practice of repentance to God. I'm at time. I'm going to end, end there. The gospel's been preached. I had a couple more things I wanted to say about this psalm. Maybe I'll come back to it. Let's pray.